The reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, and it is found on 1146 in our church Bibles. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, this isn't an easy passage. It's not an easy chapter. We're looking at the whole of chapter 4, by the way, so do keep your Bibles open. That's page 1146. Um, And I must say, when I first read it, I had a few choice words to say about pads. I'm really sorry. Um, Because it's a bit of a mare of a chapter. But pads very kindly on Tuesday dropped around four whopping great commentaries to help me as I was writing this. Um, And the more you get into it, actually there's lots to unpack um, in this chapter. And whilst it's challenging, it's also really encouraging and exciting. But I must admit, it's the sort of chapter that makes me struggle with Paul. I've never found Paul particularly easy. Jesus, I love reading about Jesus, he's awesome, he's brilliant. The words of Paul... They're hard. They, they, I struggle with them. Um, he comes across a little bit like an egomaniac. And I had a friend at university who was desperate to meet him, just so he could shut his fingers in a car door to see if he'd, he'd still be happy about it then. Um, we've grown up a little bit since then. And the more you get into 1 Corinthians, the richer and the more exciting it is, while still being quite challenging. Now this week, I get to continue the journey Pads started us on, And he's led us through the first three chapters, um, and now we tackle chapter four. And it divides itself nicely into three little sections, as all good Anglican sermons should. Um, Well, at least the the commentaries have divided it into three sections, so I'm jumping on their bandwagon. Um, So we've got verses one to five, um, which is all about judgment then rather than now. Verses six to 13, the apostles on display. I always think of a department store at that point. Um, and verses 14 to 21, Father in Faith. So I'll start at the beginning, because that's a logical place to start. I won't launch into the Sound of Music song, but there we are. Thank you for the few people who know their Sound of Music. Um, So do follow along in your Bibles. 
When Paul tells the Corinthians to regard him and Apollos and other people as servants of Christ, in some translations it's stewards of Christ, um, he's comparing them to slaves or stewards in the Roman period and in Roman society. Now, it's not your basic Roman slave who would be there rowing at the bottom of a galley in the um, Roman navy, but a steward was a person in charge of the whole administration of a house or an estate. And he, sadly always men, um, controlled the staff, issued the supplies, gave the orders. But however much he controlled, and however much power and influence he had, he was always a slave to the master. So when the master came back, he was always thought of as a slave. And it's meant to be the same for us as Christians. Whatever our position is in the church, whether we're the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, the head of a church itself, a vicar, a creche volunteer, a PCC member, a sides person, no matter what responsibility we have, and we all have some even if we don't actively use it, we remain a servant of Christ. And we're called to live like that. It's not about us Or anything else. It's about, and it must always be about Jesus Christ. First and foremost, it must be about the Lord Jesus. So if you tune out for the rest of my sermon, that's fine. Don't. Anyway, take away this. Everything we should do, everything we say, and everything should be about Jesus. Oh, Martin, you're totally on this. Um, So everything we should do should be about Jesus. But what the Corinthians had done is they divided things. They formed groups. They had sects. Sects. I should enunciate that clearly. And they'd set one leader up against the other. It's like, oh, this bloke, he's so much better than yours. Apollos, he's the best. No, 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 it's definitely Paul. Ooh, no, it's... And they set each other up against each other. How often do we do this? I'm awful at it. We judge the decisions being made. We judge the sermons given. We judge the way things are run, both in church, at work, amongst our friends, at home. We judge. We sit there and go, ooh, they're doing it like that. Mm. And we build on that. We then want to put things right or pay off what we see as an old score ahead of time. We think we know what God should do. And we are jolly eager to give him advice and to tell other people about it as well. The Corinthians held these views. They were half-Christian views based on the teaching of Jesus, but they were also half-pagan. They felt in their new status as Christians, coupled with the wisdom they had got from the world's eye, in the world's eyes, gave them the right to pass judgment on people, including Paul himself. They didn't think Paul measured up to what a fully-fledged Christian teacher should look like, and therefore they thought they could pass judgment on him. He didn't look like Nicky Gumbel, um, vicar of HTB, or insert another Christian leader of your choice. You could insert Pat there if you wanted. Um, and therefore they thought Pat, um, Paul, not Pat, they thought Paul just wasn't good enough. And I know I've done that a lot. On just Wednesday, my prayer partner came over um, to pray and I was telling her about what I was preaching about and how a big part of it was about not being judgy um, and thinking of ourselves better than others. Um, I then proceeded to launch into a really long, ranting whinge about a colleague. And Margaret turned to me and went, good to see you're practising what you preach. And that hurt. That really hurt. It was so true. It was so completely true. But as Christians, 
This is so much clear. This is this much is clear. And Tom Wright puts it beautifully. The world is God's good, lovely world. Evil is real, powerful, a horrible intruder into God's lovely world. And sooner or later, God must and will put it to rights. Believing in God's final judgment is actually part of believing that God is good and that he is a wise creator. Like David was saying in the prayers, he created subatomic particles. He created everything. Personally, I like trees rather than sub. Anyway, he created all of this and his kingdom will one day come again on earth as it is in heaven. And when that judgment comes, it will be just. It will bring light into the dark hidden places, including into the thoughts and the intentions of people's hearts. Light will shine into those dark places. Therefore, Paul tells us not to see the job half done. When we're judging, we're judge- we don't know what we're judging on. We're sitting making assumptions about people, but we don't know what's going on. We don't know the backstory. We don't know the history. We don't know the bigger picture. God does. When judgment comes, it will bring light to a lot of things, including some of Paul's shortcomings and some of ours. And maybe it will show up some of there, the Corinthians, and our own intentions. We have no right to decide what is wise and spiritual. That's the original sin. And yet we do it. So basically, we need to shut up with the judging and the whinging because we aren't even close to being perfect and we all have buckets of dirty laundry. But it also means, and this I like, we don't need to worry about other people's opinions of us. God's got this. In his own beautiful, fabulous timing, he will shine light into the darkness. So don't let other people get you down. It's a quote from Thistleton, and it's a fancy quote, but it's a really good one. It says that God alone judges human secrets, constitutes both a reminder of human accountability before God and a liberating release from trying to make interim self-assessments based on fallible judgments from ourselves and others. Basically, we don't have to judge. It's a release. It's freeing not to have to judge other people. Moving on to the next section, and the next two are shorter, I promise. Um, Apostles on display. Bit of history. When Roman generals won a great victory, and they won a fair few great victories over their time, what they used to do is they wanted everyone to know that they had won a whopping great victory. So they would have an epic parade. These were spectacular. They would often build themselves a triumphal arch, which is why if you ever go to Rome, there are a lot of triumphal arches. Um, You can get very sore feet from travelling all around Rome to see them. And they wanted to celebrate their victory. And in their big parade, there'll be music, there'll be dancers. They would often throw gold into the crowd. Um, They would often celebrate and show off the things they had captured. The Emperor Claudius, when he'd uh, conquered Britain in 54 AD, um, took his elephants on parade through the city centre of Rome. But right at the end of every procession, there was a group of captured natives from the place that had been conquered. And they would be there, they would be chained up, and they'd be basically dragged behind at the back of the parade. And they were doomed for death, either through public execution or through fighting the beasts in the arena. And Barclay says that Paul compares the Corinthians' pride and arrogance as Christians and that sense of superiority they had to those Roman generals. 
The Corinthians celebrated brilliant oratory above sincerity. Believing in their expertise in thinking and speaking gave them a status that no one could challenge. But actually, Paul tells us that we're called to be at the back of the procession. It's not about us. We are meant, and our purpose is for humble service and a readiness to die for Jesus. Now, whenever I hear the word humility, I automatically think, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, that's sort of everyone beating themselves up. But C.S. Lewis says that true humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. And Paul is saying that being an apostle is not about himself. It's not about us. It's about serving Jesus and putting Jesus and other people before ourselves, even before our own life. I'm not saying that we need to rush out and find an opportunity to die for Jesus. But it's about living in a way that acknowledges that every gift, every talent, every skill we possess, and every single one of us has been blessed with different talents, different skills, different abilities. It's about acknowledging that they come from God and giving him the glory for it. Paul uses heavy sarcasm in his letter, um, but he's also showing us how to live. When we're insulted, we should offer blessing to the person who's insulted us, even if that's just through prayer behind closed doors. When persecuted, bear it patiently. When people lie about you, speak kindly in return. This goes against Corinthian society, goes against 21st century society. But we should do it anyway. The final section, verses 14 to 21, called the Father in Faith, Paul felt he was in a unique position to challenge the Corinthians. He was their spiritual father. He led them to faith. Other people, like Apollos and Cephas, which is another name for Peter, um, had taught them, had shared God's love and shared God's teaching. And we all have teachers, people who have influenced in our lives. But usually there's only one person who has led us to faith. And as a result, their words have more weight. For me, it was a lady called Doreen who led me to faith. And actually, when she speaks to me, when she challenges me, I listen more because she's been so influential in my, earthly, in my walk of faith. And Paul calls them, as he does to us, through these pages, to do as he did. And now, he doesn't say it with pride. It comes across like he's a bit of an egomaniac. But actually, he's calling them very gently to copy him, to be like him. And just like with little children, they copy the people around them. My daughter is already starting to copy me by chatting continuously. Um, but that's what we're called to do. Um, lost my pace. And Paul pays them a compliment. He says he's going to send Timothy to remind them of how to live like him. In effect, he says that their errors and their mistakes are due not to deliberate rebellion. People, the Corinthians, weren't deliberately going, ah, stuff you, Paul, stuff you, church. But actually, they'd forgotten. So often, we're living our lives and we've forgotten Jesus at the centre of it. We don't rebel, we just, we don't rebel against Jesus, we just forget him. We forget that he is in it all. And I feel so poignantly that this, for me, is a really important thing. That conscious realisation of the presence of Jesus every single minute of every single day. Jesus is there. And he says, remember me. 
If that's something that really niggles at you and you'll go, yeah, I've forgotten him, then please, let's ask the Holy Spirit to be our guide to lead us back to focusing on Jesus. Paul builds on this challenge by telling the Corinthians that they talk enough, but fancy words don't matter. It's there and it's our deeds that show us who we really are, that show us what we really believe. Jesus said that by our fruit we will be known. The world is full of talk about Christianity and Christians produce a lot of hot air, myself included. But one deed is worth a thousand words. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in how to act. How to act in a way that is focused on Jesus. To put his sacrificial love into action. Paul loves the Corinthians. It throbs through this letter, but it wasn't a blind love that ignored their faults and challenges. It was a love that knew that sometimes discipline was necessary and that closing our eyes to a person's faults can ruin them. Paul's love was the love that knows that sometimes it's got to hurt in order to mend. I believe the challenges Paul put to the Corinthians are still incredibly relevant today. Not to judge others, but to leave that to God. To live lives of humility, putting Jesus and other people before ourselves. And to let our actions speak louder than our words. It's not easy to hear, myself particularly. But we live under grace. And this is the key thing. Jesus loves us. No matter what, there is nothing we can ever do that will make God love us any less. And there is nothing we can ever do that will make him love us any more. His love for us is at full capacity. And under that grace and under that love, we can step out. We can be more loving. We can live more like Jesus, putting him first in our lives. If you feel challenged by this, if you feel nudged by God um, that you want to get straight with him, then please go for prayer ministry at the end. They would love to pray with you. It's a loving, safe space to do business with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Daddy, help us to put aside the wisdom of this world where we judge, where we big ourselves up and put others down. Help us to live for you. Help us to fix our eyes on you, your love and your grace. And help us by your Holy Spirit to live and work for your praise and glory. Amen.